Listener supported. WNYC Studios. From WNYC Studios, I'm Brian Lehrer. This is my Daily Politics Podcast. It's Monday, June 26th. The city of New York announced last week that the shelter population is about to reach an unprecedented 100,000 people. It's now at 98,000 plus for the first time, they say. And half of them, according to the city's data, 49,000 are recently arrived asylum seekers. Before the pandemic, there weren't even a total of 49,000 people in the shelter system. Now there are that many who've come in the last two years. And with the other drivers of homelessness in the city heading for 100,000 for the first time ever in the shelter system. New statistics from the city released near the end of last week. Mayor Eric Adams. This is one of the largest humanitarian crises that this city has ever experienced. It will impact every service in the city. Why isn't every elected official in Washington, D.C. asking the national government, why are you doing this to New York? The national government has turned its back on New York City. Mayor Adams, in April, he continues to send versions of that same plea today. And that quote from Mayor Adams happens to open a new article in Foreign Affairs magazine that is the most comprehensive explanation of why this is happening and things that can be done about it that I've come across anywhere. It's 35 pages long. I learned so much from reading it this weekend. And it's no surprise that it's from Julia Preston, the Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist who covered national immigration issues for the New York Times for 10 years and is now with the Marshall Project, which reports on the justice system. The article is called The Real Origins of the Border Crisis, How a Broken Asylum System Warped American Immigration. And again, it's in Foreign Affairs magazine. Julia, thanks for taking this deep dive in foreign affairs, and welcome back to WNYC. Hi, Brian. Thank you so much for having me back and inviting me, and it's a pleasure to speak with you again. I could pick almost any line from this article to do the whole segment on, so I'll try to pick areas for you to explain wisely in the time that we have. You remind us that the U.S. asylum system was created nearly 50 years ago. What kind of an asylum system did they make, and why then? Well, uh, this, the asylum system has its origins in the Refugee uh, Act, the American Refugee Act, and that in turn uh, stems from the Refugee Convention, which the world adopted after World War II. Uh, the United States waited until 1980 to create its own refugee law, and in part at that time, the concern was the failure of the United States to take in the Jews who were fleeing from the Holocaust. Uh, so the asylum system has its origins in an idea of, of, of refugee resettlement. But asylum itself was actually created to handle what at that time were considered to be unusual, rare circumstances where someone would actually come to the border the southwest border, for example, and ask for asylum without going through all the procedures of the refugee system. So this asylum system was really created to handle small numbers of people 
on a case-by-case basis. And you write that in the last decade, the asylum system has turned into something it was never meant to be. What has it turned into? Well, it has become a, a system for, pro- for processing mass immigration across the southwest border. This was never part of the design. The, the way the asylum system is set up is it has a very broad opening at the border. If you are a person who has a fear of returning to their home country and you step on American soil anywhere along the border, uh, even in between a port of entry, uh, that is to say, in between a, 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 a formal uh, customs border station, uh, you can approach a border patrol officer and say that you're afraid to go home and you trigger the beginning of an asylum process. But from there, the, the process is actually extremely narrow. And to win an asylum case, you have to prove that you Uh, meet the standards in the Refugee Convention, which are quite precise and rather narrow and mostly uh, aimed at people who are fleeing the kind of religious and political uh, persecution that existed uh, in the wake of World War II. So those are not the conditions that uh, most asylum seekers are fleeing today. How long does it take for asylum seekers to have their claims decided by the courts? Well, because this, you have this situation where you have a wide opening and a very narrow funnel, uh, we have these huge backlogs in the immigration courts. And, and, and it's worth making that point that a, a, a distinctive feature of this system is that an asylum seeker who comes across the border has to win their claim in an immigration court. So this is an actually an adversarial process where you have a government prosecutor who is going to attempt to prove that that person does not uh, uh, deserve asylum, or in most cases that the the role of the prosecutor is to make that counter argument. You have an immigration judge. So at this point, uh, we have more than 800,000, I think it's approaching a million asylum cases in the backlog. And so it's taking Uh, an average of more than four years to get a claim decided. And in the best of circumstances, for example, in New York, uh, which is a very asylum-friendly court, uh, one in three of those cases is succeeding. The median for success in asylum claims nationwide is one case in 10. Mm. So we're putting people into a system where they have to make an argument that really they're not, without an attorney, it's very difficult to succeed in this system. And Biden can't snap his fingers and say, okay, for these people who've walked across the border, registered with the asylum authorities, and are now here waiting maybe four years for a court date, um, they can work right away. They can at least work right away. We'll give them authorization papers to work. Can he do that unilaterally? Uh, I think he could do something unilaterally, but it has to be probably what they call a rule change. And there's been so much litigation uh, in the whole immigration system in recent years about how fast you can change rules, what you have to do to change the rules. So he could try to do that, but it might, if he doesn't do it in the right way, then 
the Republicans or some opposition pol po politicians could come in and say, you know, we don't like the way you change this rule and it could be challenged in the court and get hung up. So I think the Department of Homeland Security is looking at what they can do to uh, make this happen. But the possibility that Biden could just snap his fingers. I don't see that. I don't think that exists. Your article is called The Real Origins of the Migrant Crisis. Uh, I don't use the word crisis generally to describe the U.S. part of the situation. I tend to think that's a word that's placed upon it by the right who want to demonize the migrants and make the situation for Americans sound worse than it is. But you report an estimate of 20 million people in the Western Hemisphere being displaced from their homes. That's the crisis, right? The crisis is for them, not whatever relatively minor effects the U.S. is experiencing. Or do you think that's overstating? Well, I, I guess I do think uh, that the situation of disorder and disarray at the southwest border, because of the holdover policies from the Trump administration, the failure of the asylum system, I do think it's a it's a little bit of a crisis. I do I do think there has been a tendency of some of the uh, pe folks, people in the adv advocacy community, to a little bit underestimate how dangerous and how high pressure this is. Um, we don't do any service to migrants who do reach the border, leaving them on the Mexican side, in these overcrowded shelters. We saw what happened in Ciudad Juarez with that just horrifying fire. Uh, this is, this is, there is a level of disarray and disorder at the border that has been caused by these failings of the asylum system that I really do think we need to address it. We need to focus on it, understand what's happening. This needs to be fixed. And the good news is, uh, if you read my article, there are already people at the border, and that includes the Border Patrol, the authorities, as well as the humanitarian groups, the refugee resettlement organizations. There are people there who are po poised to begin to um, uh, bring these changes, even without uh, action by Congress. If you could just get faster decision making uh, for you know, closer to the border so mm -hmm. that people who have legitimate asylum claims could then go forward in the system and the system ha would have some way of 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 mitigating and 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 rechanneling the people who don't have those uh, those uh, uh, winnable claims and can, you know, perhaps they can go into a, a labor system or some other process, but we just need to take the pressure off the asylum system. It really is creating a, a situation of disarray and danger at the border. Nick in Cliffside Park. You're on WNYC with Julia Preston. Hi, Nick. Hi. Uh, thank you, Julia, for your article. It sheds a lot of light on the issue. However, I would say that there's a need for foreign affairs to dedicate a whole issue to the genuine, actual origins of this uh, problem crisis because it's a result of hundreds of years of the consequences of colonialism, corruption, dictatorships, and a lot of the economic exploitation that originated from the U.S. and U.S. corporations. In other words, this is a, this is a set of issues and problems 
that took hundreds of years to, to come to fruition, and it's going to take at least another, if, if, if America dedicated its whole foreign policy and economic power to solving this problem, really, I think we could probably do it maybe within 20 to 50 years. Mm. It would take making democracy the primary aim of our foreign policy and justice and getting rid of the gangs and the criminal operations. And it goes beyond South and Central America because we have our own problems in those areas here. But if we could, if we could transform South and Central America into prosperous havens for democracy, justice, freedom, etc., economically, politically, human rights, they wouldn't want to come here. They'd have their own lives and their own places. They don't want to come here. And, and then once they get here, we have our own thousands, hundreds of thousands of them are employed by people who benefit from them being illegal. We could change those policies and find ways for them to work legally here because we have a shortage of people to do that, to do the kind of work they do. Anyway. Anyway, Nick, thank you. I'm thank sure you, you get for, the gist of what I'm saying. Yeah, and thank you for some deep, deep thinking behind that question. Julia? Uh, well, I would not actually find very much to dispute in his analysis, uh, but I w would be concerned about the timeline, which is, I think, that uh, we need action on this in the near term. Um, and it's something that uh, can be done. There, 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 are, uh, there are actions that, um, uh, that Biden can take to reorganize uh, the asylum process at the border. But also, interestingly, one of the things that I think is a new feature in this, I know that the way that Mayor uh, Adams has spoken about this has been very controversial, but his voice has been a, a new and 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 surprising and quite articulate um, voice bringing forward a new aspect of this debate, which is the advocacy of the mayors, New York, Denver, Chicago, San Francisco, Los Angeles, Boston, the, the, the local community coming forward and saying, this system is not working for us. We need work authorization. We need, to, we need the federal government to step in and, and give us more funding for this. This is a, this is a fair um, request. The, the federal government does do this in ref refugee resettlement. The federal government supports refugee resettlement. Now we have these folks that have come in through another system and it's fair, I think, and, and important that Mayor Adams is articulating uh, a new kind of constituency out there to advocate for faster work authorization, more federal involvement in asylum seeker resettlement, more federal involvement to, to send asylum seekers to different places around the country where people actually need their labor and are ready to welcome them. Uh, so that you don't have a situation like New York City where the systems become overwhelmed and then that creates tensions even with other immigrant communities and com right. uh, people who've been here for a longer period of time. Right. right? And we have calls that we're not going to have time to get to, but I want to acknowledge them from people saying, I'm an immigrant. I've been here for years yes. waiting to go through citizenship. Others like me are going through the normal channels. Now these people are here and getting to jump the line in some respect. Uh, another caller saying um, we already have so many homeless people who've already lived here. 
and so it's putting even more pressure on the housing crisis that is a crisis already pre-existing in the New York area. So those local things um, are are real and are being articulated. But but let me close by following up on the last caller's specific point about improving the conditions in the countries that are in crisis and therefore so many people are fleeing there. Uh, he talked about long-term, maybe 25 to 50-year solution of improving democracy there, improving safety there. Uh, you said, well, we also have to do something right away. And so they aren't mutually exclusive. We can have short-term ways to address the sending countries and longer-term ways. But what about the U.S. response in the short term? Vice President Harris, I believe, is the one who's been tasked with coordinating U.S. efforts to help with that. Uh, what's she doing and to what extent is it even doable by the United States in the short term? Well, that's a very good question. Uh, I think it depends on the country. I think uh, Vice President Harris has actually been quite effective uh, in terms of the work that she did in Central America, in El Salvador, uh, in Honduras, in Guatemala, uh, attracting private investment, uh, channeling um, uh, investment by the uh, federal government, uh, uh, foreign investment, uh, and you know, setting up programs that that create alternatives to gangs and employment at the local level and more safety and better governance in those countries. But Brian, what what is our uh, what is our solution to mitigate uh, the sending conditions in Cuba? Uh, we've had a st we've been at a stalemate with <laughs> right. Cuba we can, ever yeah, since we can't the revolution. Cuba very much, right? right. Well, or Venezuela? What right. what what are we to do? Uh, what 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 is our short term option in Venezuela? There there are more than eight million Venezuelans who fled hmm. that epic misgovernment. You know, the hospitals ran out of medicines. People can't feed their kids. It's it's there's there's not you know, you're not mitigating the the underlying causes in Venezuela in any kind of short term way. That's a very difficult political problem. And so, would... yeah, ahead. no, I was just going to say or Nicaragua. Nicaragua yeah. is a case where another left wing dictatorship. Yeah, well, it didn't start out that way, but, you but know, now. to the dismay of many Nicaraguans, yes. So what's the United States, you know, how can we, how can we change the sending conditions there? Uh, and and you would of, think, as just an addendum, um, that the Republican Party would be the ones welcoming so many migrants from Venezuela, from Cuba, uh, from Nicaragua, these are the future Republicans of America. If you look at yes. the history of people fleeing left-wing dictatorships, and once they get citizenship, who they tend to vote for. But obviously, that's not the way it's playing out politically in this country right now. And that's another segment. So we will leave it there with Julia Preston, the Pulitzer Prize winning journalist who covered national immigration issues for the New York Times for 10 years and now is with the Marshall Project, which reports on the justice system. The article is called The Real Origins of the Border Crisis, How a Broken Asylum System Warped American Immigration. Julia, thank you so much. Thank you for inviting me, Brian. It's always a pleasure to speak with you.
Brian Lehrer, a daily politics podcast, is an excerpt from my live daily radio show, The Brian Lehrer Show, on WNYC Radio, 10 a.m. to noon Eastern Time, if you want to listen live at WNYC.org. Thanks for listening today. Talk to you next time.